So as, as I said earlier, um, I'm on vacation this week, um, but I couldn't help but be here today, not only because I love you guys, but also because I love Brian and Marissa Rhodes. And uh, Brian and I have been dear friends for some time now, and uh, we, he preached while I was on sabbatical last summer, and we couldn't wait to get him back. But this is a real sacrifice for his church, so they had to find a preacher to fill in because he's a pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, so they had to fill in uh, for his uh, absence as well. Uh, but Brian, brother, come share God's word with us, and uh, we're happy to have you. Well, good morning to you again. I didn't do a, a mic check, unfortunately. I misbehaved in that way. Can all of you hear me all right? Very good. Well, I have to say I'm impressed with your pastor. He really can do it all, can't he? Uh, some, some vacation. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that I only get asked to preach. Uh, it's best for all of you that way. When I start uh, stepping up to the microphone to sing, it's harder to keep people in the building. Uh, but I bring you greetings from Grace Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, Louisiana. It is my great joy and pleasure to be with you this morning. It remains to be seen whether or not it's a sacrifice uh, to, uh, to grace. Uh, we'll see afterward, won't we? I guess uh, after the elders call me and let me know how everything went. But it is a, a real joy to be with you. My wife, uh, Marissa, and I love to, to visit with all of you, to worship with all of you, and uh, to preach uh, in, in the midst of this congregation is nothing short of an honor and a privilege. And so Psalm 126 is uh, where I would invite you to go if you are not there already. Uh, as I attempt to find my notes, which are somewhere in here. Here we are. And so you probably notice it's a very short psalm. It is one of the psalms of ascent, Psalm 126 is, which is the songs that God's people would sing. And always remember that even though uh, it is kind of weird to preach a psalm, because they're actually meant to be sung, but, uh, but we're going to preach it anyway, because we can preach any part of God's word. The psalms of ascent were the songs that God's people would sing on their way to Jerusalem, as they ascended up to the city. And you always ascend to Jerusalem. Okay? If, you are, if you are a uh, believing Israelite at this time, you always go up to Jerusalem. Even if you're coming from a higher elevation to Jerusalem, you always say we're going up to Jerusalem, up to the mountain of God. These and other psalms in the neighborhood, uh, in the book of Psalms, would be sung on the way up. And as you would get closer and closer to Jerusalem, you would hear them echoed off the wall. And so it would almost become this kind of responsive singing where uh, you would be singing it in the, the family or, or caravan that you were going with, and it would be echoed from Jerusalem with sort of a growing crescendo as more and more people arrived for the festival or, or uh, whatever it was that they were coming to Jerusalem for. This one, 126, speaks of deliverance and joy and hope, and at the end, harvest. So let's begin. It is one of my favorite psalms. I confess I've always wanted to preach it. This is my first time getting to preach it. And so when Jason invited me, I thought, well, I'll, always, I'll do this one since I've wanted to do it for some time. So when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord, Yahweh, has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. The first part of the psalm likely refers to what I'm going to call Red Sea Salvation. Red Sea Salvation. So looking back uh, uh, through, the, uh, through the generations and saying, when, when Yahweh restored our fortunes and brought us out of Egypt, we were like those 
waking up from a dream is the idea. And it, can you think of a better way to, to talk about the deliverance from Egypt, right? Here, here we were, enslaved, uh, with no hope of deliverance, these spectacular plagues that happened over the course of the time of our deliverance, and now we just walked through the sea with walls of water on either side, and when we got to the other side, the waters came down and wiped out Pharaoh and his army. I mean, that, if there's anything more dreamlike, I, I, I don't know it. And so these, we were like those who dream. It probably did feel just like that. And what did they do afterwards? Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy, right? And if you know uh, the book of Exodus, you know that right after they got to the other side of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was crushed, Miriam led them in singing. They started singing a song of thanksgiving for all that God has done, Exodus 15. The reaction then of the surrounding nations is that they took notice. Look and see what this God named Yahweh is doing for this small, seemingly insignificant people. So they make this appeal in verse 4. Essentially, do it again. Which leads me to conclude that this psalm is probably written during the exile. So they're in the exile. They're in the midst of second Egypt, if you will. And they're saying, we remember... Uh, as it were, with the, with the memories of our ancestors, the stories of our ancestors, we know what it's like when God delivers. Lord, do it again. Like streams in the Negev, which is your translation, if you've got a different one from the ESV, might say streams in the desert. That's because the Negev was a desert region to the south of Jerusalem. And so they make this plea that their fortunes would be restored like streams in the desert, which, which that... that also brings us back to Exodus and Numbers, doesn't it? When they're wandering through the wilderness and God provides water to them in the midst of the desert, Lord, do it again. What was God doing in the wilderness? Again and again and again, the Lord was giving his people stories, examples of his own mercy and of his own judgment, by the way. They got hungry. They got thirsty. They cried out to God and he answered them. And so, this is what they're asking God to do again. Hardship has come upon us once more, and so we are crying out to the Lord, Lord, restore our fortunes again. Do once more what you did for us in Egypt. What I want you to know this morning is that things like famine, trouble, hardship, the theological word we use broadly is affliction, these are part of the stories that God delights to write. So you begin to see why the psalmist moves from a plea to God about streams in the desert to a metaphor about harvest. It begins with sorrow. It ends with joy. Pardon me. I'm sorry. My ears are shaped funny, and they don't get along well with these things. So the, the, the language there, though, is really interesting. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Verse 5. Now, the first question you might have about that, even if you know a thing or two about farming, is why is this guy crying? So this, this farmer, this sower, going out to sow his seed with tears, then reaps with shouts of joy. You have enough from the other verses to know that the fortunes of God's people here are not good. They're asking God to restore them. Times are hard. People are in bondage. That's why I'm placing this in the midst of the exile. But even so, a farmer doesn't go out crying when he sows his seed. I mean, I've, I've known a few farmers. 
And I do presently know men who are farmers. I can tell you the last thing I regularly picture those men doing is crying, especially when they're just going to work. What's going on here, though, the fact that this farmer is crying, is weeping, tells you a bit about the circumstances. Because if you know anything about, say, farming corn, and I don't know much, but I learned this much by way of Google, you've got field corn and you've got seed corn corn. Field corn is what you eat, and seed corn is what you grow in order that you will have seeds next go-around, okay? Seeds to plant for the next harvest. Now, the thing about seed corn is that it is edible if you really want to, if you really want to eat it. It's not nearly as nutritious or hearty or satisfying as field corn. So, seed corn is for planting, and then to go on planting, but it's typically not something you would eat. So the picture is that of famine in the land. A family that has enough to live on just until the next harvest. Then that's it. And perhaps the land has been treating them like the Negev, more than, like the desert, more than fertile farmland. Things have been getting worse and worse each year. And so do you see that in a moment like that, the act of going out and sowing your seed is actually an act of faith. Because we could go ahead and eat this seed corn. It does look like things are that bad. Or we could plant it in faith that our God will bless us and give us a harvest. The picture is that of a man going out, sowing seed with tears, pleading with God. Please, Lord, this is all we've got left. This is all we've got left. In fact, the King James Version includes the word precious in verse 6. Precious seed. This is all we've got. Lord, please bless it. And when the harvest comes, what do you see? He sees, you see he goes home with his harvest sheaves with him, carrying them with shouts of joy. So I want to share with you this morning at least three things the text teaches us. Psalm 126 is meant to serve I think, is a kind of storytelling paradigm for God's people. It's a song Israel would know well. Again, they would sing it on their way up to Jerusalem. They would know how to sing it. They might very well have hummed it while they were planting their fields. That would make sense. And they might have sang it together as they toasted a successful harvest around the dinner table. It gave them a way to talk about their God and about his long-term, over the course of many years, goodness to them. That even when things look bad, there is a Lord of the harvest who is intent on blessing them. And so the three things, briefly. God loves to train his people in the fine art of storytelling. God love, You can just write, if you're taking notes, just God loves storytelling. God loves stories. Second, famine and trial are part of the stories that God tells. Famine and trial are part of the stories that God tells. Number three, the Lord of the harvest always writes good stories. Always writes good stories. So first, God loves to train his people in the fine art of storytelling. Most of your Bible is story. You probably know that. A lot of your Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, is is narrative. It's, It's stories of what God has done and what people have done in response. You don't have to be a Christian to know that human hearts resonate with stories in a way that we just don't with simple, bare facts. It doesn't make facts 
less true and stories more true. That's not the point. It is simply a fact that stories resonate with our hearts in a way that a bare, say, theological argument can. If I were to tell you, I believe in the doctrine of the second coming. Okay? Jesus is coming back. And then I said, Amen. All of you would say? All right. Indeed, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We just confessed it. But if I were to say oh, something like, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, to borrow a picture, in spite of all the darkness of Mordor, the king of Gondor lives and he will sit on his throne again. If, if you know the story, your heart's elevated, right? In a way that just simple, bare confession of the fact didn't quite do. And so that's because the, something in the story resonates deeper than just the bare doctrine. Again, it doesn't make the doctrine any less true or any less meaningful. It doesn't mean the story is more true. It just means you've been wired to resonate with story. This perhaps explains why our God is a great storyteller and why his word is just chock full of stories. And then when the stories are done and the book of Psalms comes along, we're still singing about the stories. God wants you to learn how to tell and how to sing stories of his deliverance. God wants you to know stories of his kindness, of his goodness, of his blessing to you. It is not hard in our day, or in any day really, to tell godless stories. It's not hard to tell godless stories. We do it all the time, okay? Yeah, so here was my day yesterday. Some good things happened to me. Some bad things happened to me. Some things made me happy. A guy uh, that I was driving and he cut me off, that made me frustrated, <laughs> right? So there's, there's a story. There are some events from uh, my day. I've told you nothing about the God who rules the universe, though. Instead of something good happened, what if we said, here's how God blessed me? It, it's a minor adjustment, but it's a big deal. Instead of something bad happened, how about God is teaching me patience right now, or love for my neighbor, or contentment in all things. Now, there are some unhelpful directions you can go with this. You can be sort of legalistic about it, where every story has to mention Jesus somewhere, otherwise you're talking like an atheist. But I, I, uh, another way to maybe think about this, kids, I know sometimes you fight with your brother and sister if you have them. But you shouldn't say to them, you know, I think God put you here to teach me how to deal with really annoying people. <laughs> you might be telling a story, and God's certainly in the story. It's not the kind of story, though, that you want to be telling. Martin Luther once talked about how every parent tries to teach their children basic responses to basic things. And if you're a parent, you know this. And if you're a child, you know this. If someone does something really nice for you, and mom and dad are nearby, they're going to say... What do you say? Right? At which point you are supposed to say, Thank you. Very good. They are well catechized. And if you're asking for something you want, mom and dad are nearby, something you want, I want this, and mom and dad say, What do you say? You say, Please. You guys are on point this morning. Luther said that God in his word teaches us along the same lines that when good things come our way, our Lord would train us to say, God be praised. Same way we say, please and thank you. Good things come our way, God be praised. Right? Beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful morning this morning, God be praised. We got to sing together, God be praised. 
We got to have breakfast. God be praised. We got to hear good news. I brought home good grades. God be praised. And when hardship comes our way or sadness or disappointment, we train ourselves by the mercy of God to flee to him and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This is the confession of the church whenever they've had to endure affliction. And because we follow after a crucified Savior, we're always sorting through some affliction or another. And so we say, Lord, have mercy. Bad weather, bad news, failures, tragedies. We know a thing or two about that this week. Train our spirits to respond with, Lord, have mercy. So in this psalm, God's people are remembering what it's like to live in the day of God be praised. Right? Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So we were like those whose dreams were coming true. So much so that the nations, the unbelieving nations, took notice and started noticing God's goodness to us. Why? Probably because that's how we talked. Okay? I know you're, uh, uh, Jason has told me that um, uh, many of you at Faith for, I don't know, last few weeks or months or what have you have been focusing especially on this aspect of the Christian life that we call evangelism. One of the greatest examples of evangelism I ever saw was, um, was a, a friend of mine um, in, uh, he was, was going shopping in Kroger, and uh, I, I guess I should have okayed this analogy with you, but I think, I think you're going to be fine with this story, Jason. Uh, he was going through Kroger, and he was looking for a particular uh, brand of beer to buy and to bring home. Okay, we're good. Good. I got the, I got the okay sign. All right, and so, uh, so the store clerk comes up to my friend and says... So, you know, can I help you? Are you looking for something? And, and the guy says, well, I, you know, I I'm, I'm, was looking for a, a kind of beer, actually. And the store clerk, I guess trying to be smarmy and, and kind, of, kind of jokey with him, said, oh, are you just looking for something to get you drunk? And my friend just said, nah, God hates it when we're drunk. Right? And, then, and then moved on to talking about what he was looking for. Right? That, that was a very simple way of, uh, I don't know how else to put this, speaking as though God actually exists, actually lives, and has actually spoken, right? Actually exists, actually lives, is actually spoken. In other words, that, that Apostles' Creed thing that we just confessed, what my friend was doing was simply talking as though it was true, right? And he wasn't trying to sort of turn the conversation to have a 20-minute dialogue about the existence of God. He was simply saying, no, you know, God hates it when we're drunk. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, this is maybe a bit, I'm, I'm meddling just a bit, but I don't know if you've noticed, but the rest of the world already lives that way. That is, the, the doctrine that the unbelieving world confesses, they just confess it and they live as though it's true, right? There's none of it, like, Christians are the ones writing, like, six-volume apologetic books and, like, everybody's going to read this. And no, no, they're really probably not. Uh, I mean, sometimes they might if it's particularly good. But speaking and living in, in such a way as though it's all true, because it is, as though all the stories are true, because they are. So if you'll rejoin me in Psalm 126. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Verse 4. This is the part of the story we don't like so much. We liked how it started, right? Our dreams were coming true. But now we realize the, the present moment of the psalmist is, that is not the gladness that I'm enjoying. Famine, heartache, loss, oppression are a part of the stories God writes. Yeah? Think of Joseph, right? 
Everything was going well with his coat of many colors. Next thing he knows, he's in a pit. Next thing he knows, he's enslaved. Next thing he knows, he's betrayed. Next thing he knows, he's in prison. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And I bet it was like a dream when next thing he knew, he got cleaned up and pushed into Pharaoh's court. Why does God do this? Why does God make affliction and make difficulty part of the stories that he writes? It is the question that's heaviest on our hearts when we're in the thick of it. Yeah? When we're in the thick of it, pleading for God to have mercy, and the story's not going the way we would want to write it. I'm going to borrow something here from Doug Wilson that I appreciate. I actually borrowed from Lord of the Rings. So Lord of the Rings, if you like Lord of the Rings, and I like Lord of the Rings very much, let's take it, let's say you like it, right? Now let's, let's take some things out that are unpleasant, right? So you have the orcs and the Urukai. They are really mean and really ugly, right? Who needs them, yeah? Let's just out with them. We don't need them. Let's also get rid of Saruman. He's kind of a jerk. And definitely, most certainly, let's scrub Shelob, the giant spider in the mountain. Ugh, right? Who needs her? The answer is you do. Because if you take all that ugly, nasty stuff away from Lord of the Rings, what do you have? You have 64 chapters of hobbits sipping tea and smoking pipes. <laughs> Boring. You wouldn't even know what kind of tea they drank because you'd get so bored by page 25, you would shelve it and you wouldn't touch it again. God writes interesting stories, not boring stories. He's interested in building interesting characters in his stories, not boring characters. The author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, our Lord Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. You know what he did? The Lord of time flipped to the back of the book and read the last chapter. And therein, he knew he was about to go through a really dark chapter, a really ugly chapter, a really hard chapter. So he flipped to the back of the book and read the last chapter. And therein he found the joy to set his face to Calvary and go for the joy that was set before him, for the joy of a reclaimed, redeemed, renewed, restored creation. This is why James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Not because... Christian, not because you enjoy painful things. It's not as though pain comes into our life and we're like, oh yes, we love this, more of this, please. Rather, you roll up your sleeves and you say, okay, this is where God has us right now. Good. Let's go. Why? Because you know what kind of storyteller your God is. So God writes interesting stories. Difficulty and affliction are part of the story. And then finally, the Lord of the harvest, he doesn't lie. He, he writes the best kinds of stories. One thing to notice is this farmer going out, sowing with tears, right? It's almost like tears are part of the planting. Tears are the watering that's happening for these seeds. The weeping and the planting go together. That's the point. Which is perhaps a good reminder that we are called to walk in faith and obey God even when it hurts. So here's what, you don't, here's what you don't read. Those who sow in tears will not sow at all. They'll sit in the house and weep because it's really hard. 
It is a reminder that we are often called to walk in faith, even when we're carrying a lot of hurt. Actually, um, I kept my notes this morning. Uh, Chris, Chris's Sunday school class, he had this great quote from uh, Carl Truman. We worship the God who speaks most untherapeutically to suffering Job out of the whirlwind, whirlwind and silences the poor man in the midst of his agony. This is no childish God, but a mysterious and terrifying one. Our worship should reflect that fact. And so we're called to obedience and hope even in the midst of the emotional burden. And the fact that we might be weeping does not mean we get excused from faith and hope and the grit necessary to go out and plant the seeds, even as we do so with tears. Which again brings us back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ weeping, and we are told that his tears became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus literally sowed tears into the soil so that he could spiritually reap a harvest of joy. You see there that what we're not doing is is blushing or or, uh, uh, explaining away, talking away, the heaviness of the sorrow. Hard times really do hurt. In fact, what the text tells us is that the heaviness goes in both directions. Those who sow in tears, heaviness, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, heaviness, bearing, being weighed down by the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. If you think you've seen heaviness, just wait for this, bringing his sheaves with it. It's heaviness in both directions. It's like the sorrow is heavy, but, but now our back is breaking under the weight of the joy. You should see there then, not pretending like it doesn't hurt, but part of our sowing in tears when times are hard is that we look to the one who has spectacularly f- fulfilled these words. We will remember that God in Christ has silenced the voices of doubt that show up in our pain which is a lot of time when the voices of doubt show up. It's when you hurt. It's, well, God must not love me, or God doesn't care, or God's not powerful enough to stop that. That's why the scriptures speak of this thing uh, elsewhere in the Psalms, shouts of deliverance. You've heard this kind of language before, I trust. Why shouts of deliverance? Because your pain and your sorrow will start preaching lying sermons to your heart. And you need the promises of God to serve as louder shouts of deliverance. Louder shouts of deliverance. Words that will shout louder to your heart than the lies of your enemy in times of sorrow and affliction. One of the best ways to do that, I mean, it sounds crazy, one of the best ways to hear the promises of God for your heart is to have the promises of God in your heart. Like this morning, y'all were doing, I don't know where the board went, but y'all were doing scripture memorization. What an amazing, wonderful, dare I say it, necessary way to be armed and ready for the assaults that will come your way and so that you can hear the shouts of deliverance in the midst of affliction. So important. And I'm not saying this text means that everything will always turn out great for you. Sometimes God gives us a burden to bear that lasts for three days, weeks, three months, 30 years. Sometimes we come home with the harvest sheaves at the very gates of eternity. 
Now, I know when I say that, some of you, if you're like me, you almost have the tendency to get disappointed. It's like, okay, he's going to spiritualize it. Great. We get it, Rhodes. You're a Presbyterian minister. You don't want to be accused of prosperity preaching. So you're going to take this text about <laughs> physical blessings, by the way, harvest and so on, and you're going to make it about spiritual blessing in the next life. Okay? Thanks a lot. I'm hurting now. I, I would offer to you that kind of thinking to which we are all prone, myself included, to kind of be dismissive about seeing the, the ultimate blessing as the blessing that might uh, be spoken of here. It can reveal a problem in the way we understand the rewards of God and the relief of God because we tend to think of physical blessing as the real thing. Deliverance in this life, you know, from sickness, death, financial trouble, etc., that's the real thing. But, but final deliverance from all our pain and all our sin and all our sorrow, that seems less real Less, less uh, substantive, less fulfilling. It, it is, though, the other way around. Deliverances here in this life are the shadows and the foretaste. Deliverances in this life are the shadows and the foretaste. The deliverance yet to come in the resurrection is the actual thing. It, it is the actual fulfillment. The sheaves you bring home with joy in the next few months... God willing, those are the shadows and the whispers, the goodness of the Lord that you will know in the undying lands. That is the real substance and the real glory. Tim Keller has helpfully pointed out that because of the cross, there are three things you can no longer say or, or do, if you like, with your pain. Okay? Three things because of the cross. One is maybe God is punishing me. Maybe God has it out for me. Okay. Number two, how dare God do this to me? Number three, I guess God has given up on me. I guess he doesn't care. So you can't, you can't look at the cross and translate your suffering as the wrath of God. Jesus Christ has already taken the wrath of God for your sin, Christian. The only thing left are the wounds of grace that wake you up and discipline you. How about the second one? How dare God do this to me? Look at what your Savior endured for you. Does the potter not have a right over the clay? Or the third one, I guess God has given up on me. You don't actually have the authority to cheapen the blood of the Son of God. He has forever given you His promise and sealed it with His own blood. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And so it is the reality that famine and affliction and trial, these are parts of our story. They're part of the story that you're going to bear on the way to the great and final harvest day. But the reality we have to keep in view, and we have to keep singing it to each other, right? The Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. And we are filled with joy, and we'll keep singing that to each other, and we'll keep crediting God, God be praised, God be praised, with all the goodness that he does, such that the unbelieving world looks at it and says, apparently their God is at work for them. That's the only reason why you would have stability in the midst of trial and affliction like that. God loves to write stories of deliverance. He loves to show off so that your neighbors, so that your family, so that your children will say, look at what God has done for them. Look at what our God has done for us. We will sing songs until our very last day with our very last breath because we are glad. 
name of Jesus. Amen.